Charles Fitch is a name that is known to students of Adventist history because of his association with the Millerite movement. He joined the Millerite movement, began preaching the soon advent of Jesus Christ, but unfortunately, if you remember your history, he, con he conducted a baptism on a chilly day, three baptisms. He caught a serious illness, and he died one week before October 22, 1844. Can you imagine what his first question will be on the resurrection morning? What happened in that week? But now we're going to go back. Before he became a member of the Millerite movement, he was a Presbyterian pastor. And in the year 1840 in New Jersey, he was asked some questions by his Presbyterian board, the presbytery of his church. They appointed a committee and they asked him some questions. These were the questions they posed to him. Number one, do you believe that the Bible teaches men are perfect in holiness in this life? I ask no more than yes or no. Number two, what cases or characters were without sin in Bible history except Christ? Merely name them. Number three, of all among the martyrs whose memoirs have come down to us, how many do you find perfect? Number four, in modern times, have not the best of men evidently been sinful more or less, and have they not thought themselves to be so? Number five, in the circle of your acquaintance, have those who claimed perfection generally turned out as well as those who feared always? Number six, are those around you who claim this more meekly and heavenly than others? Number seven, do not perfection people very frequently run into some palpable inconsistencies? Number eight, do you avow the belief that you are generally without sin in thought, desire, word, deed, or defect? And number nine, have you made up your mind publicly to teach and defend the position that there are men among us who are without sin? Nine questions. I think you get the gist of that discussion very quickly. The brethren were not happy with the teaching of Charles Fitch in that Presbyterian church, and they wanted to know what was going on. Sound familiar to some questions being asked today in the Seventh-day Adventist church? Exactly the same kinds of questions are being asked today as were being asked back then over 150 years ago. And this morning... I am going to share with you a non-Seventh-day Adventist message because it comes from the voice and the pen of one who was a Presbyterian pastor before there ever was a single Seventh-day Adventist on the face of this earth. I'm going to share with you this morning the text that he used, and that's all we'll do, the text that he used in defense of what he believed and taught at his church in New Jersey. We're just going to go through his texts that he used and sample them and see what he could find in the Bible to defend this crazy belief that men will be perfect in this life. 1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter 1 verses 15 and 16 is where he started. 
But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. And the word conversation means conduct. Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Not a bad place to start, is it? He who has called you is holy, so be you holy also in all your conduct as the one who has called you. Now, as we go through this, here and there, I will share some comments that uh, Brother Fitch made on some of these Bible texts, and here is what he said on this point. He said, I ought to have no expectation of dwelling where God dwells unless I have a character fully assimilated to his unless I love with a full and undivided heart what he loves and hate what he hates and all that he hates with a hatred full, entire, uniform, perpetual like his own. There must not be in me an approach to any thought or feeling which is not in perfect, full-hearted and joyous agreement with everything that God is and with everything that God does. Isn't that just a little bit logical? Why should we expect to be happy in God's home if the things we like are the opposite of what he likes? What kind of heaven would it be if we, on our first day there, were searching for all the things we've come to enjoy and find happiness in, and not a one of them were there? Would we be running behind trees to participate in what made us happy so that we would hide from the presence of the one who was making us unhappy? Do you see why? There will be only some who will be in that heaven. They'll be the only ones who would enjoy it. God is not going to plant people there who would be miserable. And so maybe, just maybe, if we are planning to be there, if we are planning to, to walk with God in that place that we can't even begin to describe right now, but we know some of its characteristics, shouldn't we be learning the lifestyle, the words, the attitudes, that are going to be prevalent up there, and maybe even, possibly, the diet? Wouldn't it be a terrible shame to walk up to that table that's going to be spread out for miles on either direction, walk up to the table, take a look up and down that table, and say, wow, there isn't a thing I like on this table. <laughs> Let's learn, to, learn to, to live the heaven life now. What do you say? Maybe then we'll like it up there. That's all that Charles Fitch was trying to say. Then he went to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. And he started in at verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For he hath visited and redeemed his people, and hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Go down to verse 74. That he would grant unto us that we, being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. Isn't that the right way to serve God? Without fear, without being afraid in holiness and righteousness all the days of his life. And then he went to one of the most powerful texts in the New Testament, the sixth chapter of Romans. If you've not spent much time recently in that chapter, I encourage you to make a study of it. Romans, the sixth chapter. 
It is amazing what Paul says about baptism. Beginning with verse 2, God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Are we dead to sin? That's the question, isn't it? Or are we half dead to sin? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection." knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. What a contrast he's painting here. The old man, the resurrection life, what is destroyed, what is alive. We take texts like this with a grain of salt, don't we? We say, well, that's a nice ideal. That's the way life should be. I guess maybe some people have come into that experience, but that's not the way normal life is. We, we die, and, and, and then we kind of live again in the old man for a while, and then we die, and, and then we live again in the old man, and that just seems to rotate down through life, and there's nothing much we can really do about it, because after all, we're born with a fallen nature, and our circumstances don't allow us to live the kind of life that Christ did. Do we really believe texts like this, that are just right above the level of human experience, seemingly, that just don't quite mesh with what our lifestyle has been and the lifestyle of our friends. Look down to verse 11. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lusts thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. With a passage like that, how could it ever possibly be interpreted that uh, because of the fact that we are not under the law, uh, sinning will just be going on and grace will just be applied right down to the second coming of Jesus Christ? How could that be interpreted? For sin shall not have dominion over you because you're not under the law. You're under grace. That's why sin is a powerless foe right now. Over to verse 22. But now being made free from sin. Is that true or not? But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. Romans 6, my friends, do we believe it or not? Do we believe the impossible dream that is being spelled out in these pages or do we have to revise it to come into harmony with cultural and rational norms. 
that we just have to make it sound less offensive in our ears. Well, Brother Fitch had a comment or two on this particular text as well. He said, no man is dead to sin who commits sin. He who is dead to sin sins no more. If he falls into sin, he is no longer dead to sin. If a man is crucified with Christ, he must be dead to sin. Rather odd little logic, wouldn't you say? Just very strange to have it so black and white like that. Can't really mean what it says. Absolutely impossible. And then he went to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. Now, folks, some people think that this business of overcoming sin is a demand that the Lord places on us to see if we can jump through the right hoops and qualify for eternal life. Do we believe that we have been given great and precious promises? that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Demands, commands, or promises. I think God is saying something that we need to hear. Whenever we talk about the word perfection or living without sin, we are not talking about human abilities, human demands, or God's commands. We are talking about God's promises and his willingness to give us more than we ever dreamed possible. We need to get our thinking changed on this subject just a little bit and ask for promises to be fulfilled in our lives that are not completely fulfilled to this point. Then he went to 1 John chapter 3, one of the most, um, shall we say, disliked texts in the New Testament by those who don't believe in what we're sharing this morning. 1 John chapter 3, verse 3. And every man that hath this hope in him, what hope? The hope of seeing Jesus soon purifieth himself, even as he is pure. And then verse 6, Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not, whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Verse 9, Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. And oh, those texts are so impossible that we've come up with beautiful explanations for them. You see, they happen to be in the Greek present tense, and so this is how we should read them. Go back to verse 6. Whosoever is abiding in him is not habitually sinning. Whoever is habitually sinning has not seen him, neither known him. There's our answer. It is habitual sin that disqualifies us. It is habitual sin that causes us to work the works of the devil. Occasional sin, hey, that's okay, because it's not habitual. And now we've solved our problem, haven't we? Or have we created a whole new problem? What is the difference between occasional sin and habitual sin? Because, you see, it's not just a matter of theoretical uh, reasoning. It says that he that is committing sin is of the devil. You can't be saved while you're of the devil. So, if we are habitually sinning, we're of the devil. But if we are occasionally sinning, we are of God. 
That's what we're being told is the meaning of this text. So now we have created a new dilemma, haven't we? What is the difference between occasional sin in which I stand saved in Jesus Christ and habitual sin in which I stand lost and am controlled by the devil? How many losses of temper per week is the dividing line between occasional and habitual? Three, five, seven, or twelve? You see, I need to know because in one case salvation is mine, in the other case I'm of the devil. It is not a minor issue. How many times do we cheat on our income tax before it becomes habitual? And on and on the list goes. No, that can't be the answer to our dilemma here. You see, the text is, the, the words are in the Greek present tense. And the present tense, just as in English, means present continuing action. It doesn't refer to the past. It doesn't refer to the future. It refers to present action going on at the present time. So what the text is really saying is very simple. Whosoever is abiding in him is not presently sinning. Whosoever is presently sinning has not seen him, neither known him. It's talking about present action, continuing action at the present time. Not about how many times it is done in a five-day period. It is talking about the present experience that we are having today with God or with sin. 1 John 3, a pretty powerful text. And here again is what Brother Fitch had to say about this subject. There are provisions available to enable the Christian to walk before God in holiness and righteousness all the days of his life, and so to abide in Christ that he sin not. There are provisions available. They're there if we can reach out far enough for them. There is a gift that he has provided for us. All right, next text, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. And notice again how the text starts. Having therefore these demands. Is that what it says? Having therefore these promises. Dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. How much filthiness of the flesh and spirit can be overcome? By what? Willpower? By promises and faith in the promises. You see, what we're talking about today is all about faith. It is not about ability. It is not about demands. It is about faith in the impossible, just as Jesus Christ exercised faith in the impossible when he was dying on the cross. Faith in what has not been seen. Faith in what God has said to be real. Do we have faith in the promises of God that all filthiness of the flesh and spirit and spirit, did you notice that? It's easy to think about the, the things of the flesh, but what about the attitudes of the mind, the little irritations that we have toward the person next to us that isn't very nice to be with, the um, feelings of wanting something that the other person has so badly that we'll undercut him or her to get it. The feelings of self-pity because someone has hit us where it was totally unfair of them to do it. All these filthinesses 
of the, of the Spirit. Those are the impossible ones to cleanse by willpower and, and strength of will. They are going to take a miracle of God. And it says that all of them can be cleansed. Now we're going to go to the Old Testament for a moment. He spends most of his time in the New Testament, but in the book of Ezekiel, he finds one chapter that he wants to emphasize. Ezekiel chapter 36. And here he emphasizes the how of all of this. He has told us that God expects this, God promises this, and now in Ezekiel 36 he's talking about how it will happen. Beginning with verse 25. Ezekiel 36, beginning with verse 25. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean. Not must be noticed, shall be. From all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. Are we getting the picture? Will I cleanse you? A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put in with, put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you an heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. How do we keep his judgments? By letting him do the miracle of the new birth letting him do the transforming of these brain waves that we are all messed up with, getting some new boutons into existence, getting some new pathways formed in our brains. That's the new heart. You do recognize that always in the Bible, when it, about, when it talks about organs, it's always one step up. The heart is the mind. The bowels are the emotions, etc., etc. So here we're talking about the mind, the mind of the person. And so here God is going to put his mind, his spirit in us. And then you can obey. That's what God is saying. Not until then, obviously. Now, in terms of the whole church, he mentioned another verse in here that is often not mentioned. Verse 23. In terms of what God's plan is. And I will sanctify. Now, the word sanctify also has another meaning that I think would be a better translation of this text. It also can mean vindicate. Let's try that. And I will vindicate my great name, which was profaned among the heathen, which ye have profaned in the midst of them. And the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, saith the Lord God, when I shall be vindicated in you before their eyes. Ah, what a huge text for the last generation, my friends. When will the world know that God is right and Satan is wrong? When will the world know and when will the whole universe know that only God's way works and Satan's way is flawed from the very beginning and he is a murderer from the beginning? When he will be vindicated in us before their eyes. I've heard it sometimes said that even if the church of God fails miserably, God will still vindicate his name and win the great controversy. That is never the way God operates. He could have done that centuries ago if that's the way he wanted to do things because his people never were too great at vindicating his name. And so God has waited patiently, patiently, patiently because he has said, I will find my vindication when a people that call themselves by my name are totally 100% with me. And that will prove that Satan's way is flawed and cannot succeed. 
When will the great controversy be over? When will it all be settled? See, here we're not talking about whether I am saved or lost. We are talking about when and how God wins the great controversy. When he finishes up the struggle that began so many centuries ago, he will finish it when he is vindicated in his people before the eyes of the universe. And not until then. That is the reason for the calling into existence of a remnant church at the end of the age. That is the only reason I know of. Yes, he wants us to win souls. And yes, he wants us to tell about his, his ways and expound his truths. But more than anything else, he wants a generation that will be 100% on his side. In the same way that Romans 6 has described it. That is the last generation. Then he went back to the New Testament in 2 Corinthians once again. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Verse 16. And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. What agreement does the Lord have with idols? What agreement should our temples have with idolatry of any kind? That is a contradiction in terms, isn't it? Then he went to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Too bad he couldn't find many texts in the Bible to support his view, isn't it? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. And the very God of peace sanctify you holy, holy. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. There we are again. Who is going to make the person blameless? Certainly not us. Certainly not any teachers that we have. Certainly not any programs that we have. Only he can make us blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God, one of, the, one of the outstanding of our pioneers. And Brother Fitch had a few comments on this as well. He had a, a thought or two. He said, through the promises of God, the promises, we cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit and perfect holiness in the fear of God when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ that these promises will be fulfilled to us for his sake. The question is very simple, isn't it? Do we believe in his promises? Do we believe that what he has promised he is able to carry out and fulfill? Do we believe that God can really do that or do we think it's just impossible? He said also... He who trusts in Christ to be kept from sin is the man and the only man that does fear always. He knows that he never shall in any instance keep himself and therefore always flies to Christ. Do we have that confidence? 
do we know that we can come to Christ whenever, whenever we need to? I expect that he, according to his own promise, will be faithful to sanctify me wholly and to preserve my whole spirit and soul and body blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. I therefore expect to abide in him. And whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Do we expect to abide in him? Or is our track record such that we really can't expect that on a regular basis? We'll abide in him sometimes, but not always. You see, sometimes the word perfection is used to show in the Bible that it doesn't mean living without sin. It simply means maturity or completeness and therefore doesn't really mean overcoming all sin. We haven't even talked about the word perfection now, have we, very much? We've just talked about promises of God dying to the self, living for Christ, blameless, in Christ, abiding. You don't have to use the, perfect, the word perfection at all. It is a very clear concept without ever touching the word in the Bible. Then he goes to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 27. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 27. that he might present it, that is the church, to himself, a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Can God do that? Can he really take a whole body of believers from here and there and everywhere in all parts of, of uh, in all kinds of status and, and, and economic situations and make them holy and without blemish? Can he do the impossible? Because it does seem it's impossible. And one last text, Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. Verse 20. Abraham. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. Why was Abraham considered righteous by faith? Because he believed the promises of God, what he had promised. And therefore, it was imputed to him for righteousness. Why was he considered righteous? Because he believed all the promises of God. Yes, he slipped and failed, but he came to believe just as we have slipped and failed, but we can come to believe all the promises of God if we will allow that to happen. And then we have the decision. After Charles Fitch presented all of these arguments and all of these scriptures, what was the decision of the presbytery regarding his situation? After being made acquainted with my views and feelings on the subject of sanctification, you have passed a resolution declaring them to be important and dangerous error and admonishing me to preach them no more. I must therefore say, brethren, and I hope to do it with all meekness and humility and lowliness of heart, that I cannot regard your admonition. Brother Fitch had a decision to make. He preached what he believed, what he was convicted of in his Presbyterian church. 
The ones who had the oversight of that church were displeased. They challenged him with questions. He gave the best scriptural evidence that he had for his beliefs. And they said, it's error. You must stop preaching it. And now he had a decision to make. Do we have the same decision to make today, my friends? Because the same questions are being posed to us. The same issues are at stake today as we're there. Why do I share this non-Adventist sermon with you? Because I want us to see so clearly that this is not based on Ellen White. This is not based on Adventist theologians. This is not based on Adventist tradition. Here is a man who had none of those things, never an Adventist in existence, and he went to the Bible, and this is what he found. I think we need to know that, my friends. And I think we need to be convicted on that over and over and over again because the same questions are being posed to us now as were being posed back then. And we, each one, will have decisions to make that may cost us something if we take the decision that Brother Fitch did. And I'm going to finish up this morning by sharing just a little bit of his concluding thoughts as he finished up his reasoning. While you, he's referring to his committee in charge, While you tell your people that they ought to be free from sin and are wholly inexcusable for not being so, isn't that exactly what every theologian, Adventist and non-Adventist, says today? You ought to be free from sin. Sinning is not good. Sinning is something that is not in harmony with God's will. And while you pray that they may be redeemed from all iniquity, they know, they, the people, know perfectly well that you have no expectation that it will take place while they live. And hence, all your exhortations and prayers are wholly lost. Your people know and you expect that they will live along in sin till death and that while you exhort them to be free from sin, you show them no way by which they may become so and maintain that it would be an important and dangerous error for them to to expect to be so until they die. Hence, all your efforts for the sanctification of God's professing people are rendered perfectly nugatory. Now, there is a word to conjure with. Ah, some of these brethren used the language, didn't they? Nugatory, null and void, irrelevant, meaningless. All your efforts for the sanctification of God's professing people are invalidated. I am not urging them to chase a phantom, which however earnestly and laboriously sought will elude their grasp till death. I am leading them to the enjoyment of a blessed and glorious reality which is treasured up for them in Christ, and which they may every one of them secure and most richly enjoy. There seems to be a wonderful and strange inconsistency in urging Christians to holiness of heart and life and at the same time telling them that they can never be without sin while they live and that if they think that Christ who was manifested to take away their sins will ever do it till he takes away their breath, they have embraced important and dangerous error. When the watchmen of Israel cry out in the ears of the people that no man ever did or will abide in Christ and sin not, on earth, that God who has sworn to do it never will grant to us, what can we expect but that many who desire deliverance from sin will despair of attaining it? 
and submitted despondency to the will of their spiritual foes and grown away their lives in grievous bondage when they might be enjoying the liberty wherewith Christ would make them free. And that others, glad to have such an excuse for their sins, will comfort themselves in their worldliness and their unhallowed indulgences by the feeling that they are not expected while they live to be free from sin. This looks to me like a subtle and dangerous snare of the great enemy of Christ and his church. Herein, it seems to me, lies the important and dangerous error. And then he said something very important as a principle of Bible study. There is a large class of scripture texts which are designed to set forth the truth that by nature and by practice until regeneration, all mankind are evil, only evil, and that continually. But if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away and all things have become new. The character of such a one is precisely what it was not before. And those passages of Scripture which describe his character before cannot describe it now. The Scriptures used to describe the two characters stand in direct opposition to each other. And that's a point we've missed, isn't it? There are texts in the Bible that say all men have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And if you say you have no sin, you're lying. There are texts like that all through the Bible. What do they apply to? Who do they apply to? That's the question. Those passages of Scripture which are relied on to prove that God's people never will be presented perfect in Christ Jesus while they live are designed to set forth the characters of the unrenewed and not the characters of such as are in Christ Jesus and who are therefore new creatures. That's a very important principle of Bible study. Context, time and place. What is it referring to? What experience? A few last thoughts. Can I tell the people of God that they have no Savior from sin during their whole lives? That live long as they may and labor as hard as they may to find out the path of life and pray as fervently as they may and trust in the Savior for the fulfillment of the promises as fully as they may? They are doomed hopelessly to sin against the Redeemer they love more or less even to their dying hour that all their cries and struggles for help are vain, and that they must, to some extent, be rebels against the heart of infinite love until the grim monster death appears for their deliverance. It seems to me that God's professing people do not know their deliverer, and there are vast multitudes who seem altogether unwilling to know him. That I hold the doctrine which you call important and dangerous error, and believe it to be the brightest glory in my bleeding Savior's gospel, is true. And I know that if you knew the blessedness of trusting fully in Christ as your Redeemer from all iniquity, there is not a man of you who would not choose that his tongue should perish rather than be used to pronounce such a doctrine importantly and dangerously erroneous. The testimony of a brother who never even knew Ellen White and the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Do we have evidence from God's Word sufficient to meet all of the arguments of Satan and all of the impossibilities of the human soul? Do we have sufficient promises to cast our faith on, to believe in, to trust the impossible?
Are we impossibility dreamers? I hope so. Let's make it more than a dream, though, shall we? What is impossible with men is possible with God. Have we learned nothing from the experience of the Israelites and walking through the Red Sea and manna from heaven and their clothes not wearing out and no diseases of the Egyptians laid upon them? Have we learned nothing about possibilities and impossibilities? When God promises something, he means it. And when he promises that his people will have the experience of victory over all sin, he means it. We just have to decide if we can believe the impossible promises. And I trust that today we've gotten a little help from a brother, a brother that I hope to meet when he asks that question, what happened during the week after I died? And we will fill in a little of the history that took place and show him that what he believed back then was actually fulfilled in living reality in the last generation of people that will ever exist on this earth. That he was not running down a wrong track. That he was on solid ground. And he did not lose his pastorate for nothing. He lost it for truth. And some of us will have to lose reputations and credibility for truth as well. May God help us. Let us pray. Father, as we have read these texts this morning, as we have searched the impossibilities, Lord, help us to believe that your word is truth, no matter what our experience or our teachers say. May we also believe that when you have said this, you expect to fulfill it. And may we offer the hope to every child of God that there is hope in Jesus Christ, for all the impossible promises. Lord, we want the new spirit. We want to be cleansed. We want to have the new heart. And I pray today that we will have this new heart implanted deeply within us so that very soon a seal can be placed on our foreheads because there we have come to the point of being intellectually and experientially rock solid so that we cannot be moved. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.